Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, triple-demic threat, mass mandates return to some New Jersey hospitals and schools amid a rise in a trio of respiratory illnesses. We've quadrupled the number of patients in our hospitals since July. Plus, student loan payments restart for millions after a three-year pause. What borrowers need to know as payments resume. The burden that people have now, it's so different than what it was 20, 30 years ago. Also, shutdown averted. Congress reaches an 11th hour deal to fund the government and keep services open in New Jersey, but only for another 45 days. Right, it, happy Thanksgiving right. from the federal government. And growing microforests. In urban areas, Elizabeth celebrates the unveiling of the state's second tiny forest which experts say could be a climate change game changer. We took a very unsightly piece of property and turned it into a beautiful forest. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term sustainable clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Raven Santana in for Brianna Venosi. Scientists Cataline Carrico and Drew Wiseman, who pioneered research for the life-saving mRNA vaccine, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine today. Their work ultimately helping to produce the COVID-19 vaccines that helped billions across the world and changed the course of the pandemic. This news comes as major hospital systems in New Jersey, including RWJ Barnabas, Health and Hackensack Meridian Health are putting back in place mask mandates for staff, patients, and visitors as not only COVID cases are on the rise, but cases of the flu and RSV are increasing. And as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, with the COVID vaccination supply line experiencing delays, many folks are feeling frustrated over not being able to get a shot. We're getting, uh, you know, uh, many calls per day. 30, 40 calls a day, do you have the COVID vaccine? Do you have the COVID vaccine? You know, I can't find it anywhere. And that's a problem. Yeah, Shaw's turning away clients looking for the latest COVID shot at his business, Hudson Drug in Crestkill. He's got the updated flu vaccine and he's scheduling RSV shots too. But like some pharmacists in New Jersey, he's finding both Pfizer and Moderna's version of the new COVID monovalent vaccine impossible to stock. Because it's not government organized, there's a lot of different, there's more moving pieces. There's not uh, an overhead like our government to, to uh, distribute and mandate um, and, you know, produce, have the supply given to us. I would say they have not logistically prepared for the rollout. Brian Pinto also can't schedule COVID shots at his business, Tiffany Natural Pharmacy in Westfield. It's the first time the federal government's not distributing or funding every dose of COVID vaccine, leaving medical providers struggling with insurance issues and supply kinks. Um, calls have went unanswered to Moderna. Um, 
Pfizer is is um, passing the blame on to the wholesalers who, you know, when you ask them, are saying there are delay. They're getting small small shipments from Pfizer, but not enough to really send orders to all of their customers. Pinto says larger chains like CVS sometimes schedule COVID shots, but then cancel appointments if there's not enough vaccine or staff available. An estimated 2 million people in the U.S. have gotten the new COVID shot over the past couple weeks, but... It's concerning that some of the early data are suggesting the public's acceptance is more um, reticent. There's uh, maybe some fatigue, some questioning, is this really necessary? And so it's unclear how much of a benefit we're really going to get this year if people aren't actually taking the vaccine. Rutgers' David Sinemo points to last fall's triple-demic when hospitals experienced a surge in COVID, flu, and pediatric RSV cases. But New Jersey's Department of Health doesn't expect a triple-demic repeat, especially given the arsenal of new vaccines. We're excited about the availability of these new preventative methods, and we feel reassured uh, that they can help tamp down uh, the number, particularly of severe cases, that we might otherwise have seen in our hospitals and in our emergency departments. Dr. Sejal Hathi says the COVID vaccine supply chain will open up. She's urging folks to double up. But certainly for, for COVID and for flu, you can get those at the same time. Just get them on different arms. New Jersey hospitals report admissions for respiratory virus cases are already rising, especially for COVID. Specifically that we've quadrupled the number of patients in our hospitals since July um, when we were running somewhere between 20 and 30 patients in our hospitals at a given moment. Now we're in the hundreds. So we've seen a, a big increase there. We've also seen an increase in emergency room visits. Dr. Andy Anderson says RWJ Barnabas Health, which underwrites NJ Spotlight News, has renewed mask mandates. So has the Hackensack Meridian hospital system. To protect our patients um, specifically, we're requiring visitors, vendors, staff, doctors, nurses to, to wear masks. Health experts advise don't wait to get vaccinated. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Support for the Medical Report is provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. After being paused for more than three years due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's time for student loan borrowers to again make payments on their debt. There are more than 45 million Americans with student loan debt, including more than 1 million in New Jersey. President Biden's previous effort to forgive student loan debt was struck down by the Supreme Court, but his administration is still trying to find ways to help those with the biggest burdens. Ted Goldberg reports on what borrowers are facing and what hope for relief they may still have. They were garnishing his paycheck for those student loans, which took a huge chunk out of his take-home pay, um, you know, and money that he actually had to be able to support himself and his children. Tafshir Cosby saw her son and grandchildren move back home because of student loan debt. Cosby's son studied at Bloomfield College, but couldn't graduate because financial aid ran out. That was about 10 years ago and he still owes more than $120,000. Cosby's daughter graduated from Stockton University and owes $40,000. At one point, she was uh, working three jobs. Um, she has since, you know, stopped working those three jobs, but 
I fear that now having to repay these student loans will make her have to now go back out and maybe get a second job. Cosby's children are two of the 45 million Americans who have to repay federal student loans after a three-year pause during the pandemic. More than a million of those borrowers live in New Jersey, and they owe nearly $45 billion combined. Per person, it's about $36,000 each. Cosby hopes the rising cost of college is something Congress examines, especially after President Biden's partial loan forgiveness plan was struck down by the Supreme Court this summer. I really hope that they start to think about the future of young people who have to take out these student loans and what it means for their lives when they, when they get out of college, what it means for um, them being able to be successful, but also to have a sustainable life. Given the atmosphere in Congress right now and the debates that are going on, I don't have a lot of confidence right now that that would happen, which is why it's all the more important for student borrowers to know what um, plans and programs do exist. Beverly Brown Rujo works for New Jersey Citizen Action. She says the smartest thing borrowers can do is know their options and get on a payment plan quickly. It's important that students are aware of something called the SAVE program, um, which is Saving on a Valuable Education, that's the acronym. And it is a new income-driven repayment program. If they don't make the payment within 30 days, there's a likelihood that the, the servicer is gonna report that to the credit bureaus. A one times 30 day late payment on your credit report when a student with a student loan could easily be 50 to 100 points. Paul Oster leads Better Qualified, a credit repair firm in Eatontown. He's seen Biden's newest plan for forgiving debt, a narrower proposal that would help 800,000 people on income driven repayment plans. Oster thinks the Supreme Court would also strike it down as unconstitutional. I don't think it survives. I think this one also gets rejected, unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon what your thoughts are uh, on this. Um, it, it's just not what it was meant to be. I asked Cosby if she thought her children regretted taking out those loans and attending four-year schools. Not at all. Uh, my daughter had an amazing experience at Stockton. She was able to uh, go abroad um, and, and, and have some fantastic experiences met amazing people, still have connections for my son. He's not working in that particular career field. But I think what he what he learned throughout that um, program has been helpful to him. The burden that people have now, it's so different than what it was 20, 30 years ago when uh, it was possible to um, have a summer job and pay for college and even graduate school. A burden that's been brought back for millions of borrowers starting this week. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Ted Goldberg. Former President Donald Trump and his adult son showed up in a courtroom today in Manhattan as opening arguments got underway in a civil trial brought by State Attorney General Letitia James. Trump is accused of misrepresenting his net worth of billions. Speaking to reporters outside the trial, Trump has denied wrongdoing, calling the attorney general racist and a horror show, and going on to describe the trial as the single greatest witch hunt of all time. Judge Angeron, who is presiding over the non-jury trial, has already ruled that Trump and his company are liable for fraud. While all eyes are on Trump today, there's little enthusiasm for a potential rematch next year between President Biden and former President Trump, according to a new Monmouth University poll. The poll released today focuses on a hypothetical general election scenario with President Biden as the Democratic nominee and former President Donald Trump as the Republican 
Republican nominee. If found, an even split, 31 percent say they would definitely vote for Biden, and 31 percent say they definitely vote for Trump. The poll also found 76 percent of American voters believe Biden is too old to effectively serve another term as president, while just under half, 48 percent, say the same about Trump. Pro-gun groups are pushing a federal appeals court to expand the areas in New Jersey where firearms are permitted to playgrounds, youth sports events, medical offices, and more, according to new court filings. A June ruling temporarily allowed state authorities to ban concealed firearms from most, quote, sensitive places. This legal back and forth started last year when the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated strict concealed carry permitting laws like those in the Garden State, saying they violated this Second Amendment. A statement from Governor Murphy reads in part, quote, these extreme right-wing organizations will not relent until guns are allowed everywhere, especially places with children. Plaintiff Scott Bach, the executive director of the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs, countered saying elite bureaucrats like Murphy quietly enjoyed their own armed security while denying similar protections to the most vulnerable among us. An emergency stay means that for now, firearms arms are banned from most sensitive places in the state as the federal appeals court makes its final decision. The rate of high-risk gambling in New Jersey is around three times higher than the national average. That's according to a new report put out by Rutgers School of Social Work and touted by the state's attorney general. The report underscores the various ways that gaming and gambling activities are overseen and regulated in the state. Melissa Rose Cooper has more on what's being done to consider policy changes with regard to player protection and responsible gaming. You can't smell it like drugs or alcohol. You could see that. You could there's certain physical signs. Very, very difficult to identify someone with a gambling problem. Yet gambling is an addiction that affects many residents, according to Felicia Grandin of the Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey. Our 800 Gambler Helpline has been extremely busy over the last um, number of years. Since 2016, we had a 225% increase in our helpline calls. So people are struggling. According to a new report following up on a 2017 analysis of the prevalence of gambling in New Jersey, roughly 61% of residents gambled in the past year. That's down from 70% in 2017. The data citing COVID as a likely factor for the decline. But at the same time, the study shows online gambling has tripled from 5 to 15% and the amount of people gambling both online and in person nearly doubled from 19 to about 36%. We've seen that in the revenue numbers as well. So internet gaming has really been increasing in popularity since the pandemic, especially. It was growing year over year before the pandemic, but at a much slower pace. During the pandemic, it really jumped. And since then, it's been a little more than a third of the industry's total gross gaming revenue. But with increased state revenue from the industry comes great concern. You just can pick up your phone and you can lose tens of thousands of dollars within minutes. The general public really never sees the dark side of gambling. They never see the people that have lost relationships, uh, college savings, bank accounts, and that contemplate suicide. Problem gamblers uh, have a very high rate of and probability that they will consider um, suicide. 
In fact, it's the highest of any addiction. We have, they have a 20% rate of people contemplating suicide, those people that have a gambling problem. There's also concerns of how easy access to gambling is attracting more younger residents. The study finding a third of online gamblers are 18 to 24 years old, almost five times as many than reported in 2017 and more than any other age group. The state of New Jersey and our department and me as Attorney General, uh, we take this really seriously. State Attorney General Matt Placken says the state is committed to addressing these issues, launching an initiative last year through the Division of Gaming Enforcement encouraging responsible gambling. And what that does is it uses the data that these operators are already tracking about players on their online platforms to identify people who may show early signs of problems, gambling down to their last dollar, going to a self-exclusion page on a casino's website, but not actually clicking the button, um, gambling more and more each week, things that we know are indicators of problematic gambling behavior, and then implementing at each stage interventions to hopefully stop that behavior. The attorney general says the state is also working on advertising best practices, like prohibiting gambling ads in places where underage individuals are predominantly located, as well as making sure companies aren't marketing products that would encourage problematic gambling. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, Congress was able to narrowly avoid a government shutdown for now. The government bill that was signed temporarily funds agencies to keep them open, but that funding only lasts until mid-November. Every New Jersey Congress member voted in favor of the stopgap bill except Jeff Van Drew. Now legislators have to head back to the drawing board to come up with a more permanent solution. To break it all down, budget and finance writer John Reitmeyer joins me. So John, was this short-term deal to avoid a government shutdown a big victory or now an even bigger challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think it's a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime that you avoid a government shutdown and all of the negative impacts that we see when that happens, that's a victory, right? The, the government will keep functioning, right. you know, going forward. So, so that's, that's good. The, the, the bad thing is we could be right back in the situation that we were in headed into the weekend in just a few weeks by the middle of November. And so also, all of the same circumstances that led to the brinksmanship that we saw at the end of last week really are all still in play, and we could even have a different House speaker by the time we get to the middle of November. So, yes, good that we made it through the weekend, but what's coming up next month, you know, that's a, still a big concern. We know that there were sev several compromises to push this spending bill. So what was taken out and what was added? Yeah, I think, importantly, you know, we have divided government at the federal level right now. We have Democrats running the Senate and we have Republicans running the House. And so there has to be compromise if government is going to function. And what we saw was on the side of the Senate, they were pushing hard for continued right. aid for Ukraine on a bipartisan basis. That didn't make it. House Republicans were pushing, many were pushing for more funding for border security. That didn't make it. But importantly, what did make it through was funding for disaster relief. And so whether you think about what just happened, say in Warren County several right. weeks ago with heavy flooding, we just had a, a lot of flooding over the weekend mm -hmm. that caused a state of emergency. We've had wildfires in New Jersey, other parts of the country in the era of climate change, keeping disaster relief funding afloat is an important thing. So that's, that did make it in, uh, again, until let's see where we're at in November.
Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because the way things ended, could we be back here all over again come November? And what does this mean, not just for the American people, but for people here in New yeah. Jersey? No, absolutely. And and so, you know, let's see how the next few weeks play out. But, you know, headed into this weekend, we were sounding alarms, you know, New Jersey has a big military presence, the Joint Base in Burlington and Ocean Counties, right. but there are other installations. So. The, the active duty military is an essential service. So that means they have to work, but they don't get paid. Newark Airport, TSA, air traffic controllers would be in the same situation, which, you know, if you're not getting paid, do you take your vacation? Are you sick? Do you call out? You know, that can interrupt the airline industry. When we look at just New Jersey families, uh, f a food assistance for women, infant, and children would be hanging in the balance once again. You know, crucial food assistance for a lot of New Jersey families would yeah. be among the ways that a shutdown could impact uh, just the state of New Jersey. We're not one of those states that relies heavily on a lot of federal funding. We actually send more money to Washington than we traditionally get back. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we do have a big federal presence in the state. So, you know, these are all concerns that we've now put on the back burner, but they may come back on the front burner in just a few weeks. And just at horrible timing, because of course, right before the holidays, so it wouldn't be the best scenario. Right. It, Happy Thanksgiving right. from the federal government. John Reitmeyer, thank you so much for joining me and breaking it all down. You're welcome. And the market's down to start the month in reaction to Congress averting a shutdown. Here's a look at how they closed today. cities aren't normally associated with beautiful lush forests and green space, but environmental advocates say microforests, which are dense, tiny forests with high biodiversity, are resulting in big environmental benefits for cities like Elizabeth. Not only can they help lower temperatures in places where buildings, blacktop and other surfaces absorb and retain heat, but environmental advocates believe these tiny urban forests could ultimately be the secret weapon against climate change. And if you're skeptical, I got a tour of one of the city's microforests and got to speak with residents who say the installation is a game changer. Even in environments where you do have a place to sit, the air quality isn't great. 33-year-old Shaniqua Garrett says her options are little to none when it comes to finding a healthy green space here in Elizabeth to spend time with her two children. But now Garrett has two places to take her kids after the city installed two tiny urban forests, including this one behind Kennedy Arms Housing Complex, to boost biodiversity and fight climate crisis. They're called microforests, a concept that was developed in Japan and is starting to catch on in America. Micro Forests are, are best served in urban communities where there's heat islands and not too much space to plant. So this is a micro forest, micro meaning small. It's not a giant place, it's a demonstration site. So it's doing its work in improving the air quality. It's doing its work in drainage. It's doing its work in shading and cooling the community in a very small space. Jonathan Phillips is executive.
executive director of Groundwork Elizabeth, one of the organizations that partnered with the city of Elizabeth to create and finance the microforest. During an event to celebrate the installation of the city's microforest, Phillips noted they do most things large forests do, just in a tinier space. So we have a hotter climate than we used to. This helps with the heat island effect. We also have a wetter climate, as today we'll speak to, uh, and this will absorb some of the water and air quality. Uh, air quality, this, the trees and the shrubs will definitely uh, improve the air quality for, for the residents or for everybody in Elizabeth. Phillips says the entire project took a few weeks to complete. So right now in this area, we have a microforest the size of about three parking spaces. We have between 150 and 175 trees and shrubs in this area. It's probably about uh, 1,800 square feet. So you can do these any size you'd like. Overgrown grass, overgrown shrubbery, not well organized, uh, usually a collection of garbage people would throw things in there. So we took a very unsightly piece of property and turned it into a beautiful forest. Catherine Hart is the deputy executive director of the Housing Authority for the city of Elizabeth. She says the microforests have been life-changing. Really, I think they may not realize it, but there's been an impact to people's mental health. As it's a calming effect. We've come off uh, the pandemic, although we're not finished yet with it, but with the social isolation that a lot of the residents here felt, um, putting this forest in kind of was a beacon of hope for them. I'm looking forward to most just like just keeping the community clean, um, making that nice space for my children to want to come and play and sit. We turned basically unused land into something that will be impactful to the community. The second installation of the microforest is at O'Donnell Dempsey Towers housing complex that was completed. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Raven Santana for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening, and we'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.